listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. Sponsored by Greenberg Traurig, LLP. Today's Global IQ Minute conversation is with Dr. Harold Trancunas, a non-resident senior fellow in the Latin American Initiative and the Foreign Policy Program at the Brookings Institution. He's also Associate Director for Research and Senior Research Scholar at the Center for International Security and Cooperation of the Freeman Spobley Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. Welcome. Thank you for having me. You know, last week there were major developments in Venezuela where the Supreme Court took steps that took power from the National Assembly, essentially giving President Nicolas Maduro near dictatorial power. What are we going to see happening there? It's a very interesting situation. In the short term, the crisis was driven by the fact that Venezuela has about $3.7 billion in payments due on sovereign bonds and on bonds issued by its national oil company. But this is a crisis that's been building up for a long time, at least since the election in 2015 of an opposition-dominated National Assembly. The latest events are part of the contest for power between the two sides, one that the government has been winning so far. What was um, surprising about this last week's events is that the hemisphere took notice and they put very strong diplomatic pressure on the government at a time when the government felt itself especially vulnerable because of these upcoming debt payments, which it does not have the cash currently to pay for. So I think the next thing to look for is April 12th, see if they make their debt payments. So there's also the possibility, and I was reading this this morning, that the Secretary General of the OAS, the Organization of American States, has called for this special meeting, which could conceivably lead to Venezuela being expelled from the organization. Is that likely? So far, they're being asked to return to the institutional democratic order that's spelled out in their own constitution. There's not quite enough member states in favor of that resolution yet. They're about four votes short, mostly among small Caribbean island states, many of which depend on Venezuela's subsidized oil supplies, and some members of Venezuela's Bolivarian Alliance, Nicaragua, Bolivia, Ecuador, which still support it. I didn't realize, though, that the OAS actually had this provision that would allow other countries to vote out because the country was not following democratic reforms. And in fact, this is a product of the 1990s at a time when in the hemisphere there was much more consensus between the U.S. and Latin American countries on defense of democracy. And that, in fact, led to the creation of the Inter-American Democratic Charter within the context of the Organization of American States, which was signed September 11, 2001. So has this provision happened? It was used, I believe, relative to the coup in Honduras in 2009. Uh, but it's really just diplomatic sanctions. However, Venezuela has shown itself to be quite sensitive to the prospect of becoming a regional pariah, and so has reacted very strongly to moves that the OAS to exclude it. It's really striking when you think about the potential that the country had a decade or two ago. It's really remarkable. Venezuela, by some accounts, received oil rents over and above what it expected between 2002 and 2012, about $300 billion. It's a country of 30 million people. To put it in context, the present-day value, adjusted for inflation, of the Marshall Plan to reconstruct Europe is about $100 billion. So essentially, Venezuela took in three Marshall Plans worth of income, and today it has about $10 billion in reserve. We're two months, hard to believe, two months into the Trump administration, and there's been little, if any, focus on South America. What's the implication of this, and and what should be our role? Well, this is not unusual anymore. 
Washington. Latin America is typically fairly far down the list of crises these days, even with what's going on in Venezuela. We have to realize that if we think of Latin America in comparison with the rest of the world, this is a region that has no major wars and has not had any for 20 years. The last major international terrorist attack happened over 20 years ago. There are no weapons of mass destruction. There's no proliferation threats. There's no major refugee crises. So in comparison to Europe, the Middle East, Africa, even parts of Asia, there's a reason why Washington doesn't pay that much attention to Latin America. There's simply the kinds of problems that would be threatening to our interests are, are not present. The region is by and large democratic, free market oriented, has been going through something of a mild recession recently, but has grown quite substantially. The middle class has expanded. So it's on balance a good news story, and I think that's why it doesn't come up very high on the priorities of American presidents. Later this week, President Trump will be having his first significant meetings with China's leadership. You've written extensively about China's involvement in South America. Is China filling a void where we're creating this vacuum or not? In part, it's true. We have to understand the regions are actually quite complementary economically. China has built a vast capacity, in fact, overcapacity, to build infrastructure. It's a country that is short of resources relative to the size of its population. Latin America, South America specifically, is a resource-rich part of the world that typically underinvests in infrastructure. So you could see how the two regions would have some complementarities among them, where China can help support infrastructure construction in South America, and where South America would have a destination for its exports. That said, I think we have left an opening on the side of trade. The Trans-Pacific Partnership, which the Trump administration has withdrawn from, was designed to be a next-generation free trade agreement, really one focused on a good governance and regulation more than free trade. And NAFTA 2.0. Right. It was a way of negotiating that deal as well. In creating a group of countries that were committed to higher governance standards and higher regulatory standards, which included a number of Latin American countries. China's trade with Latin America has been growing, but it's still only about 13% of the region's trade with the rest of the world. The U.S. is still about three times as much, mostly because of our relationship with Mexico. To put it in context, President Xi Jinping promised to increase trade between China and Latin America to $500 billion a year by the end of the decade. We already do that every year just with Mexico. That just gives you a sense mm-hmm. of, of the scope of the relationship of the U.S. and China with so the region. something we don't need to worry about it at this point. No, it does depend, of course, on whether the U.S. takes other initiatives to maintain its trade relationships with the United States. It, it yeah. still has bilateral agreements with most of these countries. You know, in a few minutes, you're going to be speaking to a, a good World Affairs Council audience about the influence of non-state actors. How did you get into that field of research? You know, in the wake of 9-11, I, like many people in the United States was concerned about the phenomenon, and I saw research into armed non-state actors as an important area that had not been well studied. And within that field, which quickly attracted a lot of attention, I focused on the issue of terrorism financing, which was something that the Bush administration put front and center in its counterterrorism policies, but was really not well understood in terms of scholarship. That then led me into understanding where these groups operate and how they take advantage of areas of the world where states might be weak, maybe they're absent, they're poorly regulated, financial institutions, for example. And my current research then focuses on armed non-state actors and how they sometimes fill those governance voids, when, why, how, and what is the effect on the local population. Well, let me ask you about an unarmed state actor, and that's WikiLeaks. What's the relationship between WikiLeaks and Russia? 
It's, of course, difficult to tell because it's covert. And certainly many have alleged, and I think there's grounds for looking more closely at this, that there's certainly coordination between WikiLeaks and the Russian intelligence services. And certainly the timing of some of the revelations at WikiLeaks looks highly suspicious. And the fact that WikiLeaks never criticizes Russia in its leaked documents is also something that makes uh, their actions open to question or interpretation. So I think that's something to look more closely at. I think there was maybe some hope among some that this was a move towards greater transparency that would hold governments accountable. But I think at this point, its reputation is sort of muddied by these apparent connections or alleged connections with the Russian government. In turning to the Middle East, in your view, was ISIS truly successful in creating a state, at least for a period of time, well, it acquired many state-like attributes in the sense that it was running a real economy, mostly in illicit activities, but also oil. It controlled population and territory. Those are certainly the attributes of governance. But statehood really requires not just support from the population, and this was highly variable within the territories that ISIS controlled. We have to understand that for populations that have lived in areas where it's chaotic and ungovernable and dangerous, even a highly brutal order like one provided by ISIS might be preferable to chaos. So there's that going on, but also we have to realize that states are recognized by other states, which was never the case for ISIS. And so while in certain times, in certain places, they might have acquired some popular support, this certainly wasn't the case that they acquired support from other states in the region that might have led to their recognition. Now that it appears that Mosul is about to be, at least in a relatively short period of time, recaptured by the Iraqi forces with U.S. support, what do you think is really going to happen with ISIS? Is there a way that we can extinguish it? My best guess is much has happened once before with ISIS, where this is actually ISIS 2.0 that we're seeing today. It'll be driven back into rural areas, and the real next stage of the game, one that's proven incredibly difficult for governments to pursue, is extending governance out beyond major cities, or even within major cities. Mosul obviously require a lot of reconstruction, but the presence of the state is very important for avoiding the resurgence of these kinds of groups. We have to realize that oftentimes, at least in the beginning, these groups are weak enough that states could deal with them easily if they were present and willing to do so and knew what was going on. Instead, these groups gain ground, capture terrain, and develop momentum because of the absence of the state. So we'll have to see whether the Iraqi state is able to fill in the governance gaps left behind by ISIS's retreat. I want to thank you so much for being our guest today on Global IQ Minute. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org. Global IQ Minute is sponsored by Greenberg Traurig LLP, a global firm with 2,000 attorneys in 38 offices across the globe. Visit the firm at gtlaw.com.